Welcome to the Law with DK Williams. Giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to the Law. I'm DK Williams, and this is episode 59. We're going to discuss the United States versus Paramount Pictures, a 1948 Supreme Court case dealing with the Sherman Antitrust Act and how movie studios and distributors and theaters operated back after World War II. In the mid-40s, like I said, this case came out in 48. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas, and you can subscribe to The Law and other Speakeasy Ideas podcasts through whatever your favorite podcast provider is, your favorite app, and right at speakeasyideas.com. Follow this podcast on social media, Twitter at The Law, DKW, and on Facebook.com slash The Law with DK Williams. I'd love to hear from you. And you know the spiel if you're so inclined, like, review, and share, and comment. All of that. It all helps get the word out. And I am available for speaking engagements, consulting, and teaching. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details on that. And speaking of speaking, I will be speaking at the Denver chapter of Liberty on the Rocks in a couple of months on February 5th. That's on a Wednesday. They always meet on Wednesdays at Chopper Sports Grill in Denver near the Cherry Creek Shopping Center on Madison Street. I've spoken there several times and it's always a great time. Check it out. Put that on your social calendar. Uh, We'll be in the big private room inside Chopper Sports Bar. There's bar and food service in our private room. It's free. Come on in. Socializing starts at six o'clock. My presentation will be at about seven o'clock and I'd love to see you there. And one more thing, since we're talking about movies and this Paramount Pictures case, I've been seeing commercials recently for this upcoming Clint Eastwood directed movie. It comes out next week, I think on the 13th. It's about Richard Jewell, and the movie's called, aptly enough, Richard Jewell. And this is based on a true story. And I remember when this uh, went down. It was in 96 when the Summer Olympics were being held in Atlanta. Jewell was working as a security guard, found an unattended backpack, suspicious. Apparently, he could tell it had some pipe bombs in it. He alerted the police, helped start an evacuation. They got a lot of people out, but the bombs went off, and at least one person was killed, and a lot of other people were hurt. But Jules' action saved a lot of people. If he hadn't started the evacuation with police, a lot of more people probably would have died. Jules was later identified as a possible suspect, and the media ran with that. No, what a great story. The guy who thought he pretended to find it, portrayed himself as a hero, and maybe he actually did it. Well, that was wrong. This kind of put him through hell for a while. He didn't do it. He had nothing to do with it. It turned out Eric Rudolph was another guy involved in some other bombings as well, was behind it. But Jules' life was made a living hell. And part of the reason was he cooperated with the police. He wanted to be a policeman. He wanted to help. And so when the police tell him, hey, we, we just want to clear your name, help us out here. And they were lying to him. They don't want to clear your name. So the short part of this is, and I'm going to do more on this in the future. I might just write something about it, uh, but I'll let you know. Just watch that trailer for the movie. It's on YouTube, Richard Jewell. And he's cooperating and he's just digging himself deeper and deeper in the hole, creating more and more of a problem for him. Don't do it. And speaking of movies, there's no better place to watch a movie than the 88 Drive-In Theater in Commerce City. It's at the intersection of Rosemary and 88. Now, they're currently closed for the winter, but go to their website, 88drivein.net, and there'll be a link to it in the show notes for information about when they'll reopen in the spring. And you can see three first-run movies there every night. They're in the summer. They're open every night. Three first-run movies 
for nine bucks. It's a nine dollar ticket to get in. If you want to stay for all three, you can. That's a long time. Some people do it. I've never stayed for more than two because I get tired. I start to fall asleep. But you can if you wish. So go check it out. It's the best entertainment value anywhere. And it's really a cool, nostalgic thing to do. Great place for families. All right, let's talk about movies. United States versus Paramount Pictures. And before we get into this particular case dealing with movie distribution and production and exhibition, let's hit on some antitrust basics. Now, as you all know, I have a weird habit. I like to go to the actual words that apply. So the Sherman Antitrust Act is codified at Title 15 of the United States Code, and it's Section 1 is where it starts. It was passed in 1890, signed into law by President Benjamin Harrison, and it declares, quoting the statute, Every contract, combination in the form of trust or otherwise, or conspiracy, in restraint of trade or commerce among the several states, or with foreign nations, is declared to be illegal. First, back in 1890, they still pretended to care about the Interstate Commerce Clause, and they included in there that if it's a restraint of trade or of commerce among the several states, which is what the Commerce Clause says in Article 1, Section 8. So they they actually cared about it enough back then to actually put that in the statute to say, this is legitimate because we're quoting the Constitution. We have authority to regulate interstate commerce, and that's all we're regulating here is interstate commerce. There are a lot of other things that they weren't that weren't good, but at least they paid lip service to that. And words have meanings. It says every contract that's the first two words of the entire thing. Every contract in restraint of trade, etc., is declared to be illegal. Every contract restrains trade to some degree. And the Sherman Act says that's illegal. Literally, that's what it says. And this is incredibly stupid. Words have meanings. Every contract restrains trade in some way. LeBron James has a contract with the Los Angeles Lakers. This restrains him from playing for the Denver Nuggets. During the term of the contract, it restrains him from trading his performance for money for every other team in the NBA. He's not on a game-by-game, game, he's not a game-by-game game free agent. That restrains trade. And the statute doesn't even say every contract that unreasonably restrains trade. It just says every contract that restrains trade. Throwing in unreasonably restrains trade has its own problems, but at least it acknowledges that it's not restricting every contract, which is ridiculous. So what does the Supreme Court do? It does what it is want to do when it, there is a stupid, stupidly worded statute passed by Congress. It rewrites it for Congress. It does Congress's job for them. And they add the word unreasonably to the statute, which is not there. And being in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act is a felony. This is a criminal statute, at least in part. And it says every person, this is the statute, every person who shall make any contract, again, any contract, not any unreasonable contract, any contract or engage in any combination or conspiracy hereby declared to be illegal shall be deemed guilty of a felony and on conviction thereof shall be punished by fine not exceeding $100 million if a corporation or if any other person $1 million or by imprisonment not exceeding 10 years. That's a tenth of a century or by both in the discretion of the court. That is a lot of discretion to give federal courts, in my view, way too much. For something that makes literally every contract illegal, they can make you a felon for that. Now, they haven't, but that's what the statute says. And in 1993, the Supreme Court said, in explaining the Antitrust Act, which we're dealing with here in this Paramount case, they said, the purpose of the Sherman Act is not to protect businesses from the working of the market. It is to protect the public from the failure 
of the market. The law directs itself not against conduct which is competitive, even severely so, but against conduct which unfairly tends to destroy competition itself. First of all, failure of the market. Most things described as a failure of the market are failures of central planning and not the market. It's like that cartoon, the little red crayon and the little blue crayon. They're being scolded by a big yellow crayon who's like the parent figure. And there's red scribble marks all over the walls. And the little red crayon is labeled government. And the little blue crayon is labeled free markets. And the little red crayon is pointing at the little blue crayon saying he did it. And the big yellow crayon is, is believing him, even though it's clear that it was the government that did it, not the free market. And that basically describes what a lot of the Sherman Antitrust Act is about. And the other part of the Supreme Court statement from that 1993 case, it says it's protect against conduct which unfairly tends to destroy competition. Unfairly? Who decides what is fair and what is unfair? Unfairness is the dumbest concept in politics. It reminds me of a story that P.G. O'Rourke tells. I heard him at an Independence Institute event in Denver, help man, probably a decade ago. But he relates how his young daughter, 12 or so at the time, was upset she couldn't do something or have something or whatever. And so she said something was unfair. And he told her that if she wanted to talk about what was fair and unfair, that it was unfair that she was born into a relatively well-off family in the United States and not in a third world country to a family living in a dirt floor shack. And she, if she wanted to judge the world on fairness, she might want to reconsider that as a policy metric, in effect. The point is that fairness is an entirely subjective concept that has zero objective meaning. And making it an officially sanctioned metric for government policy is absolutely unworkable, and it's a recipe for disaster. Senator George Hoare, H-O-A-R, of Massachusetts was one of the authors of the Sherman Act back in 1890, and he said the following, trying to clarify what this was all about. He says, a person who merely by superior skill and intelligence got the whole business because nobody could do it as well as he could was not a monopolist, but was if it involved something like the use of means, which made it impossible for others to engage in fair competition. Those words mean nothing. Made it impossible for others to to engage in fair competition? Because there's that word fair again. What organization is less qualified to determine fairness than the U.S. Congress or the U.S. courts? None. Because no organization is qualified to determine that. It's an irrelevant concept that gives power to people to regulate things they have no acumen in regulating in the name of some amorphous, undefinable concept of fairness. So who are we talking about in this case? The U.S., we're all familiar with that law enforcement organization, is the plaintiff. They brought the lawsuit against this group of theaters, movie production companies, distributors, and who also own theaters. So Paramount Pictures was first, so they are in the name of the case that we all use. It also included Lowe's Theaters, RKO Pictures, Columbia Pictures, Universal Pictures, United Artists, Warner Brothers, and 20th Century Fox. But it does not include Disney, which is interesting for whatever that's worth. So this Paramount Pictures case stopped all of these major studios and distributors and theater owners from doing certain things, but it didn't apply to Disney, and it still doesn't. The Supreme Court ruled 6-1 to one in favor of the U.S. in enjoining stopping these defendants from doing certain things that we'll talk about. Justice William Douglas wrote the opinion. He was joined by six others, and then there was one other justice that concurred in part and dissented in part, and there's a the, the ninth justice, Robert Jackson, didn't participate in the decision of the case. 
So what do we got going on here? The complaint filed by the U.S. Department of Justice charged that the first group of defendants conspired to and did restrain and monopolize interstate trade in the exhibition of motion pictures in most of the larger cities of the country and that their combination of producing, distributing, and exhibiting motion pictures violated sections one and two of the Sherman Act. It also charged that all of the defendants as distributors conspired to and did restrain and monopolize interstate trade in the distribution and exhibition of films. So they were found guilty and enjoined from certain practices. We'll talk about some of those things. Price fixing. The court says we start, of course, from the premise that so far as the Sherman Act is concerned, a price fixing combination is illegal per se. The other thing that the defendants were ordered not to do anymore was how they dealt with clearances and runs. Clearances, according to the court, are designed to protect a particular run of a film against a subsequent run is a clearance when used to protect that interest of the exhibitor, the theater, was reasonable in the view of the court when not unduly extended as to area or duration. So, in the view of the court, as long as it wasn't unduly extended, it was okay. Unduly extended is a very similar, you could also have said unfairly extended, right? Almost the same concept. So, who decides what is an undue extension and what's not an undue extension of a clearance? The federal court. And that's ridiculous. The Supreme Court goes on, says the district court, the trial court, held that in determining whether a clearance is unreasonable, which is going to be their job now, they're going to oversee these contracts and oversee the day-to-day operations of how these theaters and distributors and movie production companies are going to operate, the following seven factors are relevant. And it goes in and describes seven factors that a federal judge is supposed to apply when deciding if certain business practices are reasonable or not, or legal or not. This is central planning at its worst, by the judiciary, no less. So when we've got a voluntarily voluntarily agreed clearance, which is just a contract with the specific terms of a contract, and it may not be legal and subjects people to criminal sanction, like we read, right? $100 million for a company, a million dollars for a person, 10 years in prison. If a federal judge weighs these relevant factors and decides it was illegal, you're subject to these felony sanctions. I can think of no one less qualified to make these business judgments like this than a federal judge, unless, of course, we're talking about federal congressmen. And one of these seven factors that they have to look at is nearby transit facilities. Really, that's what, we, that's what we're going to have federal judges doing is weighing how close a transit facility is to a distribution or between a distribution center and a theater. Not the business people, but a judge. It's absurd. The Supreme Court goes on in this case, says that there are reasonable restraints of trade. Quote, the clearances which were in vogue had, indeed, acquired a fixed and uniform character and were made applicable to situations without regard to the special circumstances which are necessary to sustain them as reasonable restraints of trade. So he's saying there are reasonable restraints of trade, but that's not what the Sherman Antitrust Act says. They added the word reasonable because we went over what Section 1 says. Every contract in restraint of trade is declared to be illegal. Not every unreasonable contract, every contract. Not unreasonable restraints of trade, any restraint of trade. Let's be clear, the statute is ridiculously worded. But to save Congress from its own words, the Supreme Court rewrote the statute like it's done in many other instances that we've talked about. And that's not the way it is supposed to work. And the Supreme Court discusses this reasonableness concept of restraints on trade throughout the case. And we've discussed the problems with that concept and and how a a judiciary is going to decide that. It's arbitrary depending on the person making the decision. Supreme Court goes on, talks about how the judiciary is going to remedy these unreasonable restraints of trade. And it says, equity has the power, and equity is something courts 
use. Equity has the power to uproot all parts of an illegal scheme, the valid as well as the invalid, in order to rid the trade or commerce of all taint of the conspiracy. Well, that certainly clears that up. Those magic wise courts will do this. Supreme Court goes on, noted that the district court had found that joint ownerships of theaters by the production companies and distributors, they found that to be an unreasonable restraint of trade within the meaning of the Sherman Act. The district court ordered the exhibitor defendants, the theaters, to disaffiliate by terminating their joint ownership of theaters and enjoying future acquisitions of such interests. One is authorized to buy out the other if it shows to the satisfaction of the district court, and that court first finds that such acquisition will not unduly restrain competition in the exhibition of feature motion pictures. So these business people have to show to the satisfaction of the district court that there will not be undue restraint of competition in showing movies. And again, we got the federal judges here acting like philosopher kings passing on the validity of business arrangements to which the federal courts have no involvement or particular knowledge. It's like Hunter Biden with Ukrainian oil companies. Another practice that the Supreme Court discussed here about movie pictures was block booking and block booking, according to the Supreme Court, is the practice of licensing or offering for license one feature or group of features on condition that the exhibitor will also license another feature or group of features released by the distributors during a given period. So in essence, here's a movie you want. If you want it, you have to show these other movies too. That practice was banned, and the court says about how they're going to remedy this. After reflection, we've concluded that competitive bidding involves the judiciary so deeply in the daily operation of this nationwide business and promises such dubious benefits that it should not be undertaken. So that provision is too much for the Supreme Court because it involves the judiciary so deeply in the operation of this nationwide business. It seems like they crossed that line a while ago. So at least they recognize that the court shouldn't be sitting in the business office of these places stamping or rejecting how these people are operating their businesses. But that's in effect what they have, they're have they having them do. The sentiment is correct about the judiciary is unsuited to affairs of business management. They just need to apply it more often, like all the time. And then the court says, I'm quoting from the Supreme Court in this 48 decision, Section 1 of the Sherman Act outlaws unreasonable restraints. No, it doesn't. It outlaws restraints. You're adding the word unreasonable so it's not completely ridiculous. But you're adding it, Supreme Court doing Congress's job for them, which is not how the separation of powers works. The best way to get a bad law repealed is to actually enforce it. Court goes on, talking about certain business conduct, and they said that runs afoul of the Sherman Act if it was a calculated scheme to gain control over an appreciable segment of the market and to restrain or suppress competition rather than an expansion to meet legitimate business needs. Who is going to decide what is a legitimate business need as opposed to an illegitimate business need? A federal judge. Again, that's a joke. And the court talks about, again, factors about what's reasonable and legitimate. And it talks about size of the entity that you're talking about. And it says size of of a corporation, of some entity, is itself an earmark of monopoly power. For size carries with it an opportunity for abuse. Let that sink in. The government is saying size carries with it an opportunity for abuse. Are they completely unable 
to grasp the concept of irony. Do you think that concept might apply to the size of the government? If size carries with it an opportunity for abuse, let's keep giving the government more and more power. Let's keep making the government bigger and bigger and bigger. And we don't even think about the opportunity for abuse that produces. Now, currently here in 2019, the U.S. Department of Justice is in the process of seeking to get this paramount decree, as the whole thing is called, terminated and let the markets act more freely than they can under this agreement. And we'll be keeping an eye on that and what happens. So if this Paramount decree is terminated, we'll see how it affects movies because nobody likes going to movies more than I do, and especially at the 88 Drive-In Theater. And now with the popularity of the streaming services, and you can get bigger and bigger TVs for your home enjoyment. People have home theaters with surround sound and everything else. It certainly has changed the market from 1948. Now I think there's always going to be a market for movies because people like to get out of the house and going to a movie theater gives them another option to do that. So movie theaters aren't going to go away in my lifetime, I don't believe, but the market will and has changed and it will continue to do so. And letting people innovate and make choices and decide what they really want will work out just fine without a federal judge deciding if that was a reasonable decision or not, a reasonable business practice. So I am DK Williams and this has been The Law, episode 59, United States versus Paramount Pictures. Supreme Court case from 1948. We're brought to you, as always, in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. And speaking of Speakeasy Ideas, this year, Speakeasy Ideas tried an unusual experiment. We launched three social clubs in Colorado, each of which met once a month and featured a year-long close study of the Federalist Papers. Now, those who've attended have enjoyed the Vino and Veritas experience, that's what we called it, and we've enjoyed hosting it. Now, the stories told through the Federalist Papers was the construction of the greatest political document in history, the U.S. Constitution, and it's been our pleasure to be your guide through it. Now, a few months ago, after overwhelming requests to offer more, we decided it was time for another story, perhaps our favorite story, the story of abolishing slavery. Now, the American founding ignited the greatest anti-slavery movement in history. Through sacrifices of blood, sweat, and tears, Americans did more than any nation ever to bring a swift end to slavery. In 2020, Speakeasy Ideas presents Tragedy and Triumph, the Story of Slavery in the United States. This is a 10-part live experience will offer the truth regarding the heroic American story of abolishing slavery. And as a speakeasy friend, we're excited to offer you a pre-sale opportunity on the full series ticket to avoid any of the availability issues we had last year. Simply go to Speakeasy Ideas Facebook page and click on the Tragedy and Triumph event to find out how to purchase your series ticket this week before we start sharing it with the general public. So go there right now and check it out. Single event tickets will be made available soon, but you want to try and check out this series-long event ticket. So we're also stepping up our game in 2020 as we're bringing our clubs together under one roof to the theater at the Soiled Dove Underground in Denver, where you'll be treated with the professional-level production that this subject deserves. And I've been in this theater. It is incredible. I mean, it's an intimate little setting. It's not a massive theater, but it's designed for music acts. And so the lighting and the sound and the audio-visual production of the entire thing is first rate. So join us once a month, January through October, as we explore the origins of American exceptionalism and goodness, tragedy and triumph, you're going to fall in love with your country all over again. And if you're interested in something like that involving me discussing famous Supreme Court cases and how they've eviscerated the 
original constitution. Go to the Speakeasy Ideas Facebook page. Let them know about that. By the way, I'll be speaking at the Denver chapter of Liberty of the Rocks, like we talked about. That's on February 5th at the Chopper Sports Grill near Cherry Creek Mall. So uh, if you follow me on the social media formats, I'll put all the details there as well. So February 5th, put it on your calendar. Social media on Twitter at the law DKW. I'll have information about that and other news as the Supreme Court continues to hear cases and starts issuing opinions early next year. Same information you can find at facebook.com slash the law with DK Williams. I'm available for speaking engagements, consulting, and teaching. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details on that. And until next week, freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously. Dangerously.